Alrighty, welcome everyone. Topic for today is going to be how to be happy, a simple formula for maximum happiness. Now, the first part of all this is really defining what happiness is. You know, so often we see happiness as this kind of uh, outside of us thing that is separate to us that only, you know, a few people have. And a disclaimer, you know, happiness isn't just the word happiness. It's also what it means for you. It could be joy. It could be flow. Um, it could be contribution. It could be that feeling that you have where you feel secure in your emotions and in your life. Happiness is a combination of all those things. So don't get caught up in the terminology of happiness being this larger than life thing that's bigger than you. Happiness is simple. It's something that you can work at, right? So happiness is a skill. It's a skill set. It is something that you can develop over time if you choose to, which we'll go through uh, in this live here as well. So, so two things to remember. Happiness is a skill set, and happiness can be developed over time. Now, what's my story with happiness? Well, throughout my whole life, there's always, you know, especially as a teenager, especially as a, a younger adult in my adolescence, had a lot of experience in my earlier life that kind of led me to believe that I'd always be living in a haze, you know, I, I had terrible social skills, was very socially awkward, unable to connect with someone because I was so in my head, and it took me years, if not a decade, to, to come out of that haze. You know, I don't really feel like as a, as a child we, you know, I mean personally for myself, I don't feel like I was awkward, I feel like I, I developed it over time. I was always quite shy, but being around people, even I remember my first job, even walking to my first job feeling absolutely just intimidated by adults and blushing, getting scared and, and unable to connect with people. And if you have social anxiety, you know how bad that is. You know how crippling it can be for your life. You just want to connect and and uh, and, and create relationships. So when these kind of things are in the way, we're unable to experience joy, unable to experience happiness. And again, happiness isn't this, uh, this one-term definition that people talk about. It can mean something different for everyone. It means something different for me. It means something different for you. It's just really aiming towards emotional health. So I want to introduce something to you guys that's probably a bit different. Uh, it's a happiness formula, right? Now, I won't take credit for this. It's out of this book here, and I've just adapted it for myself. It's called The Happiness Hypothesis, right? And in this book, it talks about happiness. <laughs> Makes sense, right? Happiness Hypothesis. It's by Jonathan Haidt. And he talks about how happiness can be achieved and what factors are a part of it. And he proposes a formula. And in this formula, it says happiness equals SCV. Now you're probably thinking, Luke, what the hell is this, right? So happiness equals state set point plus conditions of your life plus the voluntary activities you do, right? So let's break that down for a second. So happiness equals state set point right? So your emotional set point, where you are in your life at that time, you know, if you're someone who uh, is prone to depression, your set point might be a little bit lower. The conditions in your life, so where do you live? Uh, what's your environment like? Uh, how noisy is the environment, which we'll touch on in a second. And the third part, the voluntary activities you do. So um, socializing, going out and meeting people, um, engaging in meditation, engaging in practices that are, facilitate happiness and joy. That's the last part of that. So again, remember, H equals S C V. Happiness equals state set point, conditions of your life, and the voluntary activities you do, right? So we're going to break down each of these into uh, a section. And we're going to touch on each part of this uh, formula so you know what to address with your own happiness and you can get a kind of idea on what you need to do for your life in order to achieve happiness, right? So the very first thing, so happiness equals state set point, right? So a lot of, uh, uh, this is just an assumption, right? A lot of psychiatrists, they believe that happiness equals your state set point, right? Or you can, another terminology would be happiness equals your biological set point. So the, the presumption or the ground that it starts in is your happiness is your biology. So the solution we're going to offer you for your biology, for your biological set point or your state set point, is going to be Prozac. It's going to be uh, SSRIs, as they call them. I don't know the technical name for that. I just know the acronyms. And 
where that leaves us is kind of in this place of, so chemistry is the only solution that we have, right? And, and you'll find out in this life here, if you keep listening, you'll find out why it's not the only solution, right? So where does this assumption come from, right? So there's a few different angles we can look at this from. The angle that I, that I personally agree with is when it comes to the big five personality traits. So let's break this down further. When we're born, when we come into this world, you'll recognize that kids have a certain proclivity about how they behave, how they show up in the world, right? It could be uh, a kid's more extroverted, they're more social, they're not, not afraid of social situations. It could be a kid that's very intelligent, very conscientious, right? It could be someone who, a kid that's very emotional, cries all the time, screams all the time. You see, especially if you're a parent, you'll see that kids have different proclivities when they come into this world. And what psychologists call this, particularly personality psychologists, is the big five personality traits. Now, the first of these big five personality traits, in no particular order, is extroversion, agreeableness, that's the second one, third one is neuroticism, fourth one is openness, and the fifth one is conscientiousness, right? So just ignore all the big words or break it down, right? Extroversion is uh, how outgoing you are, right? Are you extremely outgoing or are you more reserved and quiet and kind of do your own thing? Uh, agreeableness is uh, how warm and forthcoming you are. Um, the opposite side of that would be disagreeable. So people who are disagreeable are very defiant. Um, they don't know how to disagree and move on. Like, oh, okay, whatever, that's fine, I don't agree with that. They have to stake their claim and their point. And this can be traced back to childhood, right? And again, just so you know that this isn't, this isn't set in stone. This is just a, a map we're using to explain this particular part of the biology. Now, the third part is, is uh, neuroticism. So neuroticism is how emotional you are, for lack of better terms, right? Are you prone to depression? Are you prone to ruminate? Are you prone to anxiety? Are you prone to... Um, mental illnesses, right? Because certain people and certain, and I mean, it's the environment as well, which we'll get into, but certain people are more prone to these mental illnesses or, or mental health stuff, right? And the next one is openness. So how open are you to new experiences? You know, an example of someone who isn't open is someone who won't go out and say travel or explore or adventure. They have a hard time trying new things. You're like, why don't you try it this way? Why don't you do this way? People that, low, people that are low on openness we want to stick to their own way. They have their own set routine. They like doing it this way. And as soon as you suggest something different, they will they'll be like, no, I'm not doing that. That's not me. So that's openness, right? The last one is conscientiousness. Now, this is a, like a, a drive. Um, people who are good at business are very conscientious. Um, the two traits that that's go into this is uh, orderliness. So how you know ordered things are for you, um, structured, you know, like uh, operational wise. And the second part of this is the uh, industriousness. So how, you ever met those people before who they, they say they're gonna do something and they just do it. There's no, there's no resistance whatsoever. There's no hesitation. They just go ahead and they do it, right? And they just plot along. They're just like, like machines, just keep going, plowing, 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 plowing. They just keep going. People who are high in conscientiousness, an example of this would be Elon Musk. He's very high in conscientiousness and very high in openness, right? And from, from what appears, very low in neuroticism, right? So, with these traits, we can start looking at, you know, and this is just an example, right? You can use whatever personality type you want. I personally think this is the most scientifically backed and the most useful. But you can use whatever trait, whatever, you know, trait system you want. This is an example of what you can use, right? So you might want to ask yourself, on these big five traits, where do I, where do I lie, right? Am I more neurotic? Am I more agreeable? Um, am, I, am I less open? And once we know these things, we can start saying to ourselves, okay, out of these big fives, I'm very low on extroversion, I'm very low on XYZ. What I need to do is focus more on that. And when it comes to happiness, back to what I was saying before and coming full circle, when we come into this world, we tend to be strong or weak or vice versa in uh, the range of these traits. So when it comes to happiness, people who have very high neuroticism naturally, right, and your life circumstances can change this, you can change this, you have the power to change this, when you're very high in neuroticism, you're more prone to, to mental illnesses, like I mentioned there before. And once you know that, you can stop beating yourself up and saying, oh, well, I'm, you know, at least this is how I think about it. I'm, I'm so bad. I'm X, Y, Z because I'm, you know, neurotic. It's like, these are the cards you've been dealt. So have compassion for yourself. Have empathy for yourself because we come in this world with strengths and weaknesses, 
right? And depending on the context in which you live, depending on the, the country that you're born in, depending on the environment you're born in, these traits can be favored or not favored, right? So it's just a luck of the draw thing. So if you are high in something or low in something, you think, oh my God, I'm, I'm high or low in this kind of trait, don't beat yourself up because A, there's no point, and B, there's strengths in certain areas and weaknesses in others. So it just depends on the environment you live in. And on top of that, we're going to go through it in a second, you can overcome these ones. You can, you can choose to move past these particular traits. All right. So just a reminder, there's extroversion, agreeableness, neuroticism, openness, and conscientiousness. Right. And these traits, when we come into this world, we, are, we tend to have proclivities towards certain traits. You might be higher in agreeableness, you know, uh, higher in extroversion, etc., etc. Right. So this is the first part of the formula. So happiness equals state set point plus conditions of your life plus the voluntary activities you do. H equals SCV. And I'll keep repeating this throughout so we remember. So when we have the big five traits, that's that's the, the part of the state set point, right? So how you come in the world determines your state set point. And the actions that you take, so the conditions of your life and the voluntary activities you do, will shape and shift your state set point, right? So let's talk about conditions, right? So you have, I guess you could say two types of conditions for, I guess, broad, broad terminology. You have the external conditions. Well, I'd say, frankly, you have just external conditions because that's what conditions are, right? So external conditions are the things like where you're born, right? Um, you know, what city you're born in. Were you born in Africa with less opportunities? I'm just generalizing there, not every African country. Were you born in Australia where there's a plentiful amount of opportunities? Were you born to poverty, right? Those conditions, they, they change how happy you are. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, oh, okay, well, if I'm, you know, if I'm born to a poor family or a poor country, I'm, I'm less happy. Not necessarily. There's something known as the adaption principle, right? So we adapt to the environment that we're in. And most things... Pretty amazingly so, this is how flexible humans can be, and animals just in general, most of us can adapt to most environments. And you'd be surprised by this, there's a combination of four different uh, environments, external environments, that we can't adapt to. And this is so odd, I, I looked these up and I'm like, this is strange, it's very strange that these are the conditions that we can't uh, adapt to. So I'll read them out to you, right? And I'll give you some examples of it. So. The very first one is noise, right? So a good example of this is if you live next to uh, traffic lights. You know, you have the traffic going past all day and people stop at the traffic lights. You hear the music blaring. You hear, so I used to live ne next, across the road from traffic lights and I remember being horrible, right? I kind of got used to it, but you know, they, because it was so uh, regular and so routine, weirdly enough, I didn't get, get used to it. So there's been some science to show that if you live next to traffic lights or in loud environments where the noise is uh, overcrowding or you know it's 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 just random and it's indispersed all over the place, you can't get used to that. So you can't adapt to that. So what allows us to be happy as humans isn't just the conditions we live in, but the conditions that we can adapt to, right? So financial means, obviously to a certain point, we can adapt to those. Living in certain environments, we can adapt to those. Heat, you know, various things like that, we can adapt to that. But noise, being the first one, we can't adapt to that, right? And I'm not saying that, you know, you can give me many cases of, of people who have done that. It's just, this is just, a, you know, a general term. And I imagine, you know, if you did it, if you live next to a highway with traffic lights going off all day, um, you, you would feel more stressed out. And that's what they did. It increases stress and reduces your concentration, which we'll talk about in a second, is very, very important for happiness. Right, the next part, the next external condition that we can't adapt to is commuting, right? So they did a test where they measured people who started commuting, right? And uh, they noticed that when they came to work, their cortisol levels and their stress levels were extremely high, right? And they then did it three or four years later and they measured over time and they found that people who traveled to work still the same distance were... Uh, still had the same amount of stress, if not more, than what they did at the start. So this tells us that we can't adapt to commuting. Now, the common argument to commuting would be, well, I'm moving to a better place, or I'm moving to a bigger home. We adapt to bigger homes. So the inverse of adapting to things in life is that we don't just adapt to bad conditions, 
we adapt to positive conditions. So if your life turns around tomorrow and you you know, you become a multi-millionaire, and this is what you see with people who win the lottery, right? You don't have the the uh, the mechanisms or the healthy foundations and mindset in place before these things happen in your life. For example, when you get too famous and you're too young, um, which you've, I'm sure you've seen with people like Justin Bieber, etc., you adapt to those things and you adapt to that life. So when you have a certain, certain standard of dopamine intake, right? And this is what I spoke about in last week's live. You want to check it out. Go to my YouTube, which I'll, I'll post in my um, top of my bio there, um, my last video on YouTube. What we see is that with phone addiction as well, and with using our phone so much, we're so used to so much stimulus, stimu- <laughs> stimulus, stimulation that we lose the excitement of new things, right? So if you're on your phone all the time doing work, A, you lose out in flow, and B, you lose the, uh, you have such high tolerance for dopamine for things in your life. Right, it's the same thing with going out or doing drugs. You 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 have you have such a high tolerance for excitement, or when you drink when you go out. Right, so like, I can't drink when I go out. It's, it's too hard. It's like well, the reason it's hard is because you're so used to that high dopamine intake. Even though alcohol is depressing, I get that. But just take take away the the uh, example I'm giving here as as an example in your own life. So if we keep doing that, we have such a high tolerance that we're not able to get happy as easy. You want a low tolerance, right? And you get a low tolerance through some of the stuff I'm going to tell you about in a second, right? So commuting, right? I was just saying before, so with commuting, I'll repeat it again. When we commute, our stress levels, no matter how long we're doing it for, we don't adapt to it. We stay stressed over time, no matter how long we commute for, meaning over years, over, you know, five times a week, over three or four years. And if you're saying that you want to move to a big house, wherever it is, you're going to find that, you get used to those kind of things. So that's the second one. So the first one, just to recap, was noise. We don't get used to noise. We don't adapt to noise, right? So these conditions. Uh, the second one's commuting. The third one is lack of control, right? So if we have a lack of control in our life, and this is not what you think it is, I'll explain in a second. If you have a lack of control in your life, so the degree to which you can control things and your stresses, if you don't have much control over that, um, I would say you enter a state of despair. You're like, I can't control this. I'm, I'm at whims of this, right? I can't control these circumstances. This is something that we can't adapt to. We need to have some control in our life. So I want to read a verse out of, <laughs> sounds like the Bible, I want to read a verse. I want to read a part out of this book um, that talks about a study, right? And this study goes through um, people living in a nursing home. They gave them two different conditions, one where they had control and the other one they had no control whatsoever. So... I'll read this out to you, and this is this is incredible, right? Catch this, right? In a famous study, Ellen Langer and Judith Rodden gave benefits to residents in two floors of a nursing home. For example, plants in their rooms and a movie screening one night a week. But one floor, these benefits came with a sense of control. The, res- the residents were allowed to choose which plants they wanted, and they were responsible for watering them. They were allowed to choose as a group which night would be movie night. On the other floor, the same benefits were simply doled out. The nurses chose the plants and watered them. The nurses decided which nights was movie night, and uh, that's also. And this small manipulation had bit of big effects. On the floor with increased control, residents were happier, more active, and more alert, as rated by the nurses, not just by the residents. And these benefits were still visible after 18 months. Catch that, still visible after 18 months. Most amazingly, at the 18th month follow-up, residents of the floor given control had better health and half as many deaths. Right, catch that. Better health and half, half as many deaths. That's crazy. 15% versus 30%. In a review paper that Rodin and I wrote, we concluded that changing an institute's environment to increase the sense of control among its workers, students, patients, or other users was one of the most effective possible ways to increase their sense of engagement, energy, and happiness. That's incredible, right? So catch that. So basically, if we have more control of our environment, you know, like having the choice of... So an example of this in maybe your life, not a nursing home, because I I doubt many of us are in nursing homes, at least if you're listening to this, is having some money saved up in your account. So if you choose to want to leave your job you have a bit of flexibility of you know having time to choose a job and to step into something new. And even just the, the, the thought in your mind that you have the capacity 
to shift to a new job because you have the money there is enough to make you feel happy. So you want to try and improve your control, improve the control you have in your life. And this isn't over other people. It's got nothing to do with other people. This is purely what might have something to do with other people if you have someone trying to control you as an example, right? You need to get those kind of relationships. Someone's trying to control you. But having circumstances where you can choose and, and decide things is empowerment, right? And that's the kind of example for me is when I think about a corporate job. And I could be wrong here. You know, I haven't worked a corporate job for years now, so I don't really know what it's like now, but it's probably different with COVID. But having someone to tell you you have to be here at this certain time and leave at this certain time and you have to show up and do this, have to achieve this result, get a, uh, sure, it might be productive for the business, but how good is it for you, right? So that's the third one. Quick recap. The, 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 the uh, external conditions we can't adapt to, noise, commuting, lack of control, and probably the most important, in my opinion, uh, which is the last one, relationships, right? So if we have conflict in our relationships, we have conflict in our intimate relationship, our friendships, we can't adapt to that. It's not possible for us to adapt to that, right? So on the other flip side, the strength and the number of relationships you have, which we'll go into, is super important for your happiness, super important for your mental health. So the number and strength of relationships is super important. But if you have conflict with a spouse or with a friend or, you know, with someone at work who is just even annoying you, right? You have to go to work. You're like, oh, this person's going to annoy me. Or this guy is trying to uh, flirt with me all the time. It's, it's uncomfortable, right? You won't adapt to those things. As much as you think you will, you won't adapt to them. Right, and if you're an odd case that does, good on you. This is just an example for 99.9% of people in the world, right? So that's the second part of our happiness, right? There's some examples of the conditions you can't control externally, right? So again, to remind everyone here, so happiness equals state set point plus the conditions in your life plus the voluntary activities you do, right? So these are the three factors for happiness. Right, so we've gone through the state set point where we talked about the big five personalities, big five personality traits. We've gone through the conditions we've talked about the external conditions we can't adapt to. Now the last part is voluntary activities. Right, so these are the things that you choose to engage in, that you consciously choose to go out and do. You know, going for walks in nature, meditating, uh, reading, uh, going to bed at a certain time, having a deep restorative sleep. All these things are voluntary activities you choose to engage in. An interesting side note, so they've done studies. And by the way, if you head to my YouTube, once this live's over, depending on what platform you're in, or even most of the platforms will have references underneath of all these. So if you want to check out the facts, you're more than welcome to. So the voluntary, so a side note I was getting to, the greater the interest in money, fame, or beauty, the poorer the happiness uh, that someone feels, right? So catch that. This is a study that's done. I'm just summarizing it here, right? The greater your interest in money, fame, or beauty, the poorer your happiness is. So if you choose to engage in voluntary activities that are pivoted or that are aiming towards you know, money, fame, or beauty, it's, the chances are that you're going to be less happy than someone who does otherwise. Say, for example, you focus on relationships. And what's really interesting to tie it back into personality types and personality traits, there's certain personality traits that are more inclined to go towards money, fame, or beauty. There's certain personality traits that are more inclined to be entrepreneurs. There's certain personality traits that are more inclined to, to be nurses, for example, or to uh, engage in a certain kind of, you know, to have more friends or less friends, which is really interesting. And I'll, I'll reference that in the description as well. So um, the voluntary activities we engage in, right? So people enjoy two activities in particular the most, right? And I'll tell you why we, we can't necessarily engage in these 24-7 because you see what happens when we do. And I'll give you an alternative to it, which is even better. But there's two activities that humans um, that enjoy the most. So in this study they did, right, they had uh, they had this, it was, I think it was back in the 1990s. The study, you might have heard this book actually. This book is called Flow. Um, I can't even pronounce his name. Don't even ask me to. Here it is. It's, uh, you know, I'm going to try and pronounce it just for fun. Mahali. That's his name, right? He wrote this book called Flow. Very popular book, amazing book. One of my favorite books. You have to check it out. In this, in this study in the 1990s from memory, he had, he had a, I think, a couple of thousand people carry pages around, right? Little devices that you, you, know, you just type away on or you press on. I actually don't even know, to be honest with you. I'm just guessing. You, you type on, you tap on uh, the answer. 
And throughout the day, he would uh, send out a, a pager to people saying, uh, how happy are you from a scale of zero to 10? Or it might have even just been, you know, are you happy right now? Yes, no. And it turns out people most happy when they're doing two things. One was eating, right? Specifically with people, but just in general eating. And the second was having sex, right? So obviously they put on the page after they finish sex or whatever. But those are the two states that we're most happy in, sex and eating, right? But it becomes a point where if you're doing too much of that, it takes away from your life, right? You, then you see sex addiction and food addiction and various things and obesity. So a state of, of, uh, of voluntary activity that's even more powerful than this was when someone was in a state of flow, right? A state of like ease, a state of when they're doing something where they feel in the present moment. Now to put this in technical terms, um, I have it written down here actually. So it's total immersion in a challenging task that is close to one's ability. So again, flow is total immersion in a challenging task that is close to one's ability. So there's two questions that proceed this, at least for me. The first question is, what is stopping us from flow? What is stopping us from entering a state of flow? And the second question is, how do we get into flow, generally speaking, when those distractions are gone? Right, so the live I did last week was about phone addiction, right? And phone addiction is one of the, the, uh, the, the see, the issue with phone addiction is that when we use our phones, when we engage in media multitasking, they call it, right? When you're bouncing between these windows, we lose flow because we're distracted. We're not focusing. So the prerequisite to flow, which again is a prerequisite to happiness, to voluntary activities that make you happy, is concentration. So total immersion begets concentration. If you're not totally immersed in something, you're not concentrating on it. If you're not concentrating on it, then you're not getting to flow and therefore you're not going to engage in activities that are useful for you. And that's why we fall back so much on um, chasing pointless sex or chasing, uh, you know, food that's not even good for us, that destroys us, you know, junk food, macros, all that kind of stuff. LVE food, as I call it, low vibration energy food. And so when we engage in these kind of foods and these activities, we're typically at such a high dopamine tolerance, which I spoke about before, high dopamine tolerance, that we lose our capacity to enjoy the small things in life. So enjoying the small things in life, as a side note, is a skill. It's a skill that's developed, which is a part of a skill to develop happiness, right? So the two things that are probably most prominent in most people's lives when it comes to not being able to get into flow is constant notifications, constantly checking their phone, um, this is just one section of this. So constant notifications, constant checking their phone, uh, not being able to contemplate, right? Not engaging activities where they're separate from stimulation. And on top of that as well, not allowing yourself to be bored, right? Being bored is the before state of inspiration. Once you push past boredom, you're going to feel straight away you feel inspired. You feel like you want to do something. You want to move. You want to create and I found this for myself, right? This is this is my own experience, right? And I'm not saying, pointing the finger at you guys, saying you should be changing. Like, this is me. Like, and I had to go through a whole process. It took me like a week, even longer. Like, even now, it's still difficult. Where I had to learn to detach from my phone, detach from the constant stimulation that was always going on through my phone. You know, the notifications, the messages, the likes, the followers, whatever it is. I had to learn how to detach from that. And that in of itself... I had to face boredom. I had to face these emotions that were showing up, right? So facing these emotions and learning to get into flow is a process you need to go through in order to do voluntary activities. Again, we'll go to the equation again to achieve happiness, right? So as a quick recap again. Happiness equals state set point or your biological state set point plus the conditions of your life plus the voluntary activities that you do. One more time, happiness equals state set point, right? The big five personality traits we spoke about, the conditions in your life, and the voluntary activities you do, right? So once we master all these things in our lives, once we're able to recognize each part of these different states, and if you don't, if you just jumped on now, you don't know what I'm talking about, check out the YouTube video. I'll post it in my in the link there. If you're on YouTube, then how are you going? Um, these are different states of, of happiness that we need to achieve. So the voluntary activities, just to summarize that up quickly, which is the last part of it, to enter a state of flow, we need total immersion 
in a challenging task that is close to one's ability, right? So the first thing you need to do to get to that is you're going to have to learn how to let go of stimulation around you. Now, what I personally do, these are some tips now, right? What I personally do to get out of uh, using my phone all the time and stimulating through technology all the time is to A, have my phone outside of my room when I'm engaging in uh, things that are important to me. Uh, for you, it could be painting, it could be basket weaving, it could be skip, uh, jumping on a rope, you know? And what I'm talking about here is when you listen to music as well, right? It's a big thing that we do. We, we use music or productive podcasts as a way to avoid being present to the moment, which again, takes us out of flow. And I'm speaking about myself here as well. Like I would sit there and do work or try and video edit it and like try and pause a podcast and then go back to video editing and then like play the video on that and then podcast. And it's like in my mind, I'm like, oh, I'm learning or I'm, I'm doing video editing at the same time, doing two things at once. I'm sorry, but multitasking is BS. It doesn't fucking work, right? Multitasking is a myth, right? At least from the stuff that I've read. If you say otherwise, then I mean, just look at how well it's working for you. I doubt it's working that well, to be honest. Um, it could just be me. Maybe it doesn't work for me. Anyways, so I put my phone outside my room. I focus on one thing and I try and do what they call ultradian rhythm sprints, right? So you have your circadian rhythm, which is around 24 hours, and you have ultradian rhythm, which is the amount of focus that we can tolerate uh, as a human, right? So ultradian rhythm, which is one hour and a half. So I have my phone outside my room. Um, I put a timer on on my phone outside my room. I can hear it ring when it's done. I do a one and a half hour work sprint, right? And we're going to notice, right, if you're a chronic phone user, which is 95% of us, let's just be fair, let's just be honest with ourselves, right? We're all very chronic phone users. Once we uh, have our phones away, emotions are going to come up, boredom's going to come up, and you're going to be tempted to use your phone. But create a barrier between you and your phone, whether it's opening the door, whether it's, uh, you know, being in a separate room to your phone, um, whether it's like putting it in a drawer and then covering it with stuff or like putting it in a safe and locking it, whatever barrier you need, put it there, right? And what's going to happen is when you have your phone outside your room and you're just focusing on work and there's no music, there's no stimulation or anything, you're going to feel everything come up. You're going to feel the emotions. It's like a meditation, right? It's an external meditation that you're doing with the work. You're flowing with the work. You're integrated with the work. You want to have a bit of pen and paper next to you because emotions are going to come up. Uh, all these different emotions are going to show up in your body and you're going to hear yourself, I'm bored or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm upset about this or this person said this to me. And potentially, if you don't get rid of those things, for lack of better terms, if you don't address those things, at least in a small manner, they're going to ruminate on your mind. You can just push them to the side if you want to. You can acknowledge them in your mind. You can even note them in your mind and say, oh, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling that. Or what you can do is get a bit of paper right next to you um, and you can essentially put a line down the middle and on one side, you write down all the emotions that are showing up for you. Right now, I feel sad. Right now, I feel upset. Or like right now, I feel very bored. So you're acknowledging those emotions inside of you. And at the same time, you're addressing them and you're focusing on work. It's fine to be distracted by your emotions because they will go away. And it's not outside of you. You're, you're, you're doing emotional work in the process, right? So on one side, you have all your emotions there that you're writing down. If you choose to, on the other side, you can choose to reframe those emotions. So I'm feeling bored. You could write next to that. What's a new way of thinking about that? What's a new perspective? Maybe boredom is, is the precursor to inspiration. Boredom is a precursor to flow, right? So just to recap, one, your phone is outside of your room. Two, you have a barrier between you and your phone, right? So your door is closed. It's in your drawer. It's in a safe. I don't know. Do whatever you want to do. Just make sure there's a barrier between you and your phone. Three, you have a bit of pen and paper or whatever it is that you feel is relevant for you. Me, it's personally pen and paper next to you, next to me. And I write down all the emotions that come up, all the, all the different things that come up, like a to-do list, like, oh, I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this. Instead of, you know, thinking, oh, I'll just go to my phone, I'll write down, you remove, you create another barrier, right? You write down all the things that come up in your mind. So when you're entering this flow state, the only barrier that you have is what's come up in your mind. And you just write them down quickly. It will take like 0.5 seconds, maybe one second, right? If you choose it on your phone, for example, Next thing you know, you have a notification there. Next thing you know, you have a message there. Next thing you know, you have uh, you know, a like on Instagram, a follow on Instagram, and you're caught into this spiral, right? And it's so easy to do this. Remember, technology companies spend billions with a B, billions with a B, trying to get you to stay on their platform. They're just doing business, right? 
It's your job as a person not to blame them, but take responsibility for that and learn how to create boundaries with technology, which is what we're talking about right now, right? So that was the voluntary activity part. So that's what's in the way of us getting to a voluntary activity of flow, right? So quickly to recap, the voluntary activity part of happiness, right, is uh, the things that we voluntarily choose to do, to engage in meditation, skiing, basket weaving, guitar playing, um, tightrope walking, whatever it is that you enjoy. The voluntary activities that we choose to engage in, right? And the there's two that humans will naturally love doing, um, which is eating with people and having sex. But again, gluttony of those two things leads to uh, complete, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Despair in your life. Like you do that too much, you're gonna, it's going to take you over. So they found in these studies that the most powerful thing beyond that, just to quickly recap, is flow activities, right? And the barrier between flow activities and you being in flow is your phone, technology, various things like that. Now, once you remove all the barriers of technology and of your phone and you're, you're sitting at your desk and you're noticing that you're starting to be concentrated on your work and you'll feel this, right? And you'll feel the emotions and the thoughts in your mind come through more clearly. It's less scrambled. It's less uh, radioactive. It's not like It's just like straight. It's like You can feel it in your body, right? Because you're not... Uh, overstimulated, you're not multitasking, your cup is not filled with dopamine. Another cool activity as well is just going for walks and contemplating, getting in touch with nature. Nature is a great uh, rester. You, you, you restore, you balance yourself out by stepping into nature. Right? So once you start feeling like that, after a few days, depending on who you are, for me it was a, like about a week because I was, I'm such like an ADHD person, at least that's how I feel about myself. Um, after about a week or a few days, you'll find that the stimulation of technology is gone, right? This is when you start learning that you can get into these flow states, right? And with any task, right? With any particular task. So once you're in this state of mind, how do you enter this flow state? Well, again, flow is total immersion in a challenging task that is close to one's ability, right? So now that you're attentive to what you're doing because you're not distracted by technology and by your phone and various things, you can start actually thinking about what is it that I want to flow in? Do I want to do video editing? Do I want to do graphic design? These are just my things, right? Do I want to have a conversation on live and feel the flow of a conversation, let things flow through me? Do I want to do gardening? Do I want to be able to go to work and the job that I don't enjoy, right? There's a flip side to everything, right? The job that I don't enjoy, I want to learn how to flow with that. Well, you need to find out where your, where your roof is on that. And it could be anything right? Let's say, for example, you're doing administration. I don't like doing administration. I don't think most people do, but say, for example, you love it. What if you don't love it, right? You recognize that you enter 100 tasks in the space of three minutes, as an example, right? That's your ability, right? To get in a flow state, you put your challenge up slightly more, and you place yourself in a, you know, improve by 2%, 3% more. And you have total immersion activity because you're not distracted by technology anymore. You're not distracted by things around you, right? So think about something in your life that is important to you that you want to improve and that you know you can sit down and do, or maybe not. Maybe the challenge is to be totally immersed. Maybe the challenge is to say, I'm going to work for an hour straight without distracting myself, without, uh, you know, without looking at my phone. That can be a flow state in itself. And again, once technology is removed, you're going to be in a flow state. You're going to feel it. You're going to be like, ah, this feels so good relaxing. It's like having sex, just this beautiful flow, right? So that's the flow state. And again, I'll just quickly recap because it's super important. I know if you've been here from the start, I've said this about four or five times now. Happiness equals state set point, right? Plus the conditions of your life, plus the voluntary activities you do. Keep that one in mind, right? So with these three different categories that equal happiness, what's some, you know, examples of happiness, like a happiness checklist, right? So I wrote out a checklist here. These are purely subjective. These are these are things that I've recognized in my life that make me happy, right? I want to preface this by saying that imagine a graph, right? You have a graph here and you have a straight line going up to the right-hand corner on that graph. And over that straight line, you have a squiggly line that goes over that, right? That squiggly line, that up and down is your happiness. That is your state of mind. Naturally, we will feel up and down. Naturally, 
we will go up and down. You know, it could be a cycle of 90 days. It could be a cycle of even a year. It could be a few days. It could be an hour. Naturally, you go up and down, right? So acknowledging that going up and down is a part of the process, right? But that straight line going up, that improvement going up is the discipline and the action that you're taking or maybe, maybe a better way to put it is the action you're taking, the the mindset that you're putting towards happiness, which, which by the way, is happiness is a skill set that you can develop over time, right? So again, remember that happiness is a skill set that you can develop over time, right? No matter what circumstance that you're in, no matter what place you're in, in your life, you can achieve happiness. You can achieve joy. You just have to practice it, right? And the tricky part about practicing happiness and about practicing that state of mind is we often get attached to the state of mind of happiness, right? So we want to recognize, A, again, it goes up and down happiness, and that practices like meditation, getting to flow state, uh, you know, having cold showers, Wim Hof method, all these kind of things. These are uh, these these particular activities. They lift you up, right? But when you start engaging in them, you get attached to that state of mind, right? So when I started meditating, I, saw, I felt so good. It's like wow, I can I can do anything. I can, I can just do whatever I want to do. I'm I'm on. And this is the rest. This is me forever. And even as early as two weeks ago, I had this like two weeks where I was just super inspired. Everything was coming to me naturally. I was flowing. I was in state. I was just like. All my dreams, all my goals are already achieved. I felt so good. I got attached to that state of mind, right? Because inevitably, that's life, right? Inevitably, you go up and down, up and down, up and down. So I didn't acknowledge that. And as soon as I recognized, again, I wrote down on my, my page, split in half there. It's in the middle of work. I wrote down to myself, your, your emotional state, your happiness, right, goes up and down over time. And not to be attached to the up and down state, but be attached to the action or the discipline or the relaxing state of mind that you want to be in uh, or the, the goal of happiness, being attached to, uh, to having output towards that. So in simple terms, being attached to your discipline and your desire to achieve happiness, right? Slowly improves over time because you're choosing to improve it over time because you're choosing to engage in it over time, right? So that's, that's the aim of happiness, right? So I wrote a little checklist here of small things that you can take away to improve your happiness, right? So the very first thing that I have in my happiness checklist is build and, and engage in relationships that have depth, right? So what is a relationship that's not deep feel like? It's the kind of relationships where you're friends with them, you go out for dinner with them, but it's obligatory. You do it because, you know, you just maybe you feel lonely or you don't want to, you know, you don't want to lose them as a friend because they've done so much for you. I'm not saying to, to remove these people out of your life. To be honest, I hate when personal development courses or people say, cut all the people out of your life that are, you know, you know, that are not good for your success. It's like, that's crazy. You gotta have people, right? You gotta have friends. You gotta have them around you. It's just the way it is. But try to engage in relationships that have depth with people who have similar interests or have opposing interests that you can have debates with and conversations with or whether it's not in, it doesn't have to be intellectual, it can be spiritual as well. You know, you have a spiritual depth to them um, where you, you can talk for hours, right? Um, have the same hobbies, interests, whatever it might be. Try to cultivate deep and happy relationships, right? And manage conflict, right? And a quick little hack for managing conflict, right, is a book called Crucial Conversations. Um, and there's an acronym called STATE, S-T-A-T-E. Um, I actually don't remember the acronyms, but long story short, the first part is to acknowledge what the person is going through. It's like, I hear what you're going through and ask for the facts, ask for what is going on for that person. Uh, what, what, what's, what's your story? What's your emotional state of this? Well, how do you feel about this? Then ask for the facts, sorry. Ask for the facts, like what actually happened? And then try and create a reconciliation through that. But if you want more on that, because I didn't explain it very well there, it's, uh, the, it's Crucial Conversations, an epic book. And again, I mentioned before, for those who have just joined on this live, that uh, a key uh, a thing we can't change, a thing we can't adapt to, the adaption principle, remember, one of the things we can't adapt to is conflict in our relationships, right? So if you want to heal conflict in relationships and know how to mitigate them, right, even just a few percent better, crucial conversations, incredible book, amazing book, all right? Okay, so that's the first part. So build and engage in relationships that have depth or depth to you, or meaning to you, the kind of conversations you can have for hours. 
The second uh, happiness checklist part is manage your phone addiction and create boundaries with technology. This is numero uno with me, right? So imagine a phone or your phone, I should say, and your technology is a person, right? If you were to look at on your phone, which you can, by the way, in your settings, I'm sure you know how to do it. You go in your settings and you check your screen time. If you were to check in your screen time how much time you spent on your phone and technology, and you were to say, I'm going to spend that same time with a person, you know, five or six hours a day, for example, you'd be shocked. You'd be like, no, I'm not doing that. I need, I've, got, I've got things to do in my life. And of course, we work from our phones. We do stuff on our phone. We take phone calls. Yeah, yeah. I understand that. It's just an example, right? But you want to create boundaries with technology and you want to manage your phone addiction because if we don't do this, we can't enter a state of flow and we can't then enter that blissful state of mind that sustains us, the voluntary activity that sustains us, right? And the third one of the happiness checklist is aim to raise your state set point through consciously practicing changing your perspective. We have a choice, right? We have a choice. Every single thing that comes up in our mind, this is the old cliche, right? We have a choice with things that come up in our mind to engage with them or to challenge them. So an example of uh, practicing doing this, of changing perspective, is again, the, the paper and the pen, a line in the middle and writing your emotions down, right? Sometimes you just need to sit with your emotions. Sometimes you just need time to actually feel the emotions and to sit with them and divulge them. But if you want to, you can reframe them or try to learn a lesson from them. So again, one line in the middle of a page, on that one side you have, I'm feeling bored right now, I feel, or you know, you have a fight with someone, I had a fight with someone, I don't feel understood, I don't feel heard, yada yada yada. On the other side, it's like, you could do boredom is a path of inspiration, you can reframe that thought. And the more you do this, the more you consciously practice change your perspective, the less neurotic you become, the less emotional you may become, or you still be the same emotional person, but you have uh, patterns of behaving or looking at things that will change over time. This is an age-old adage. Everyone knows this, right? But we need to be reminded. And a good, uh, a good kind of field to, to look at is CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. This area is huge. They've studied deeply on CBT and how it works, and it's very effective from what I've read. So check out CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, if you want to uh, you know, have a science-backed way to do it. Or just write stuff down on a bit of paper. It's like a mini CBD, um, CB. T, sorry, CBD, that'd be funny. Um, so next, see happiness as a skill that can improve over time. We've touched on that a fair bit, so we'll leave that for now. Next one, recognize that just because you've been dealt a bad hand doesn't mean you have to be unhappy. So going back to the first segment of this, we spoke about uh, you know, your proclivity of who you are as being a more neurotic person. You might be more prone to mental illness, you might be more prone to depression, more prone to anxiety you might be socially anxious, just remember the conditions in your life don't define the outcome of your life. And just because you've been dealt a bad hand, say for example, you're a naturally very sad person, doesn't mean you have to be that way. And yes, it's going to be harder for you. Let's just face the fact, it's going to be harder for you, right? I'm not going to sugarcoat and say it's not going to be harder, but it's going to be harder for you. And you're going to have to find a way to get through it because A, the other side is going to be much more deeper for you. The more you practice on it, the more strong it is for you, the, the higher you rise at least from my experience and what I've seen other people as well. Next one, get your sleep, diet, and health in check. I mean, I don't need to say anything about this. This is pretty self-explanatory. But an example is go to bed before 11. There's been studies done to show that when we view uh, you know, fake artificial lights after 11 p.m., our depression or our anxiety or any kind of mental, uh, I think it's just depression anxiety actually from memory, and our mood, sorry, our mood, uh, our capacity to deal with our mood and to regulate ourselves goes down dramatically when we expose ourselves to light after 11 p.m., okay? Another one is try to get lots of sunlight. Another one is have money saved so, so you have some level of freedom if you want to decide to change where you live or your circumstances. Another one is put yourself in situations to get yourself into flow. Again, remember, no distractions plus challenging tasks, right? And the last one is make time for play. So this is something I've been really doing that's that means a lot to me, actually, because my exercise routine used to be a lot of uh, you know, bench press or, you know, aesthetics or trying to uh, grow my muscles. And where that left me was kind of feeling bored. And again, you know, boredom's not a bad thing. That's fine. 
felt bored and not in my body. I felt just very heavy, you know, very like, oh, it's the same thing again and again, and I'm doing this because I want to be big or I want to be like shredded or whatever. And what I've been doing recently is doing play, right? And what that looks like is animal flow. So doing various things that move your body through space. Like what are your movement patterns? How do you move? How do you show up in space? What do you, can you do a handstand? Can you flip? Can you invert? I can't, but I'm aiming towards that, right? And what I've found is that it's really weird. I can't put it into, you know, a scientific way because it's not really scientific in honesty, but I felt an ease, a level of groundedness, being close to the ground, like flowing, moving, like moving my body. Dance is an example of this, right? And to illustrate this point, when you're at the gym doing weight training, how much time do you spend learning new movements? I'd say by the time you've learned one, not much at all. You're probably going to learn, I don't know, maybe three or four new movements a week. How much does a dancer learn? How much does someone doing BJJ learn? How much does someone doing mixed martial arts learn or combat sports? A lot. So you want to try and diversify your movement patterns and make it a play. Play like an animal. Play like a kid because that's huge. You know, we need play. We're still... You know, if, whether or not you're an adult doesn't matter. It's like you still need play. And it's huge for, uh, it could be just banter as well. It could be messing around, saying stupid shit, doing stupid stuff. That's huge. So keep these things in mind. And remember, happiness equals your state set point plus the conditions of your life plus the voluntary activities you do. So H equals SCV. And uh, yes, thanks so much, everyone, for listening. And uh, I wish you guys tons of happiness, tons of joy. And thanks so much for joining. Peace. Thank you, beautiful people, for listening to another episode of the Getting Mental Podcast. If you liked this episode, please subscribe, follow, and share it with your friends and family. If you would like to see more of the Getting Mental Podcast, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. We're on every social media platform. You can find us at Getting Mental Podcast. Until next time.